the alignment between financial gain and climate benefit is perfect, right? The thing that we sell is a carbon credit, a ton of carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere. And so there's no, yeah, there's just no complication there. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to another episode of the Net Zero Life. I'm your host, Nathan Svee. And on the show today, we've got Shashank Samala and Max Schulten, the CEO and founder and head of commercialization of Heirloom Carbon. Heirloom is a moonshot company. I can count on one hand the number of companies trying to do what Heirloom Carbon is hoping to accomplish. Heirloom is looking to remove a gigaton of carbon from the atmosphere by 2035. That would be equivalent to 2% of humanity's entire carbon footprint in today's standards. We get into Heirloom's proprietary direct air capture carbon dioxide removal technology. That's a mouthful. Max and Shashank's origin story, why they think capitalism is the key to solving climate change. We also cover the irony of engineering our way out of climate change. Specifically, if Heirloom succeeds, does that mean that they're going to give humanity a license to pollute? It's a really exciting conversation and I can't wait to share it with you. I'm going to leave most of the technical terms to Max and Shashank, but just so we are clear, parts per million is the amount of carbon in the atmosphere. It's not so important, the exact science, but know that pre-industrial revolution, we were at 280. Today, we're around 400, 410, and scientists believe that when we get to 500, that's where the doomsday starts. As always, everything I say is my own opinion, is no way reflective of my employer. Please don't sue us. We would really not like that. Max Shashank, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Excited to be here. Thanks, Nathan, for having us. Excited to be here. Yeah, you guys are the first uh, the first duo that we're recording. So I'm I'm excited. I'm a little nervous, but um, if you don't mind, can you just share your your title and your name, your full name? Sure. Um, I'm Shashank Samala. Um, I'm CEO of Heirloom. And I'm Max Schulten. I am head of commercialization here. Great. So, uh, so people can get comfortable to your different voices and we know who we're talking about. Uh, we've had a, a few chats and I've, I figured we could just dive right into it. So I thought we could start by talking about capitalism as the means to stop climate change. Uh, and as I understand it, feel free to correct me, but Heirloom is a San Francisco startup, right? Um, and you each come from kind of a venture-backed industry, tech, crypto, I'm curious, when did your climate consciousness start? And then how did you, like, how did that lead you to find founding a climate tech company? And then why do it as a for-profit venture? Wow. Great first question. So, you know, personally, I grew up in, in India and, and saw firsthand, you know, negative impacts of climate on people, you know, people I went to school with, they were affected by, you know, increasing levels of droughts and cyclones. Um, and it's it's interesting, like you know, those folks didn't call it climate change, and 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 you know, it so happens my hometown Hyderabad is you just recently had a massive once in a century downpour, and ninety percent of the folks there still don't call it or at least attribute one of the causes to be climate change, and that's fascinating, right? Like the, there's a, a component of equity and education in all of this, and you know, you asked about when my climate consciousness start well i think it's always kind of been there in the background i remember you know in college you know i got a big break moved to the us and went to good schools and you know and um and uh and in college like i was taking these nuclear engineering classes just like dropping in and, and learning it's like you know i remember learning about hey like this you know uh uranium the, the, uh, the fuel for uh, nuclear energy it's like 10, 10 million times more energy dense per kilogram of fuel compared to gasoline it's like why are you know this is like massively car carbon free power why are we not unleashing that so i i thought i was going to become a nuclear physicist or something nuclear engineer but you know eventually sort of did something else you know maybe five six years in i started to realize hey like you know, and it's great sort of building the future. You know, we, we're, our customers are like building like reusable rockets and satellites. You know, and just imagine, you know, this kid that just like grew up in um, Southeast India, 
um, and, you know, got this cosmic lottery to move to the U.S. and have a chance to build a company that helps these great, great engineers and customers. It's like, what else would you need to have? But then, you know, pretty soon I realized, you know, really thinking back to my roots, the future is, it's great building the future with all these great customers, but the future is already here. I think, you know, uh, Nate, sorry, uh, Kim Stanley Robinson from um, uh, Ministry of the Future uh, talks about this. It's the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. And, and, and the biggest threat to that is climate change. So, and once you realize that, like, I think, you know, it's, it's once the, the, your, your whole compass for how you evaluate things in life change. So, you know, that sort of started my journey and, you know, I spent my nights and weekends at, when I was at Tempo, just learning about how I can solve this problem um, and how to use my skills, like, you know, leveraging the power of markets, the power of capitalism, power of technology to solve this. So, I mean, my, my background is, is quite different, to be honest. I, I grew up in, um, you know, in, in Boulder, Colorado, which is right on the foothills of the, the Rocky Mountains. It's um, one of the most amazingly beautiful places in the world. Still, I'm just shocked every time I go home and, and sort of drive into town. The, the mountains are just incredible there. But, um, you know, nature and the outdoors were a, a big part of my upbringing, it's also, you know, it's the home of, of NOAA and the University of Colorado and uh, sort of uh, the hippie movement. And I was, you know, during my upbringing was sort of surrounded by environmentalism as it, you know, as it was in the, in the 90s and early 2000s. My, you know, my mom um, has worked in sustainable development in Africa for, for most of my life. My dad worked in community solar. So it's this, it's this thing that's always been present in my life and around me. Um, but you know, I, I spent the first part of my career similar to Shashank, just sort of squarely in Silicon Valley tech in, uh, like very much so, you know, in, in one of the early Bitcoin companies and then in autonomous vehicles, very much just Silicon as Silicon Valley as it gets. And frankly, I, you know, I, I loved that. I, I actually, I, I really, really enjoyed sort of working on cutting edge technology and, and, um, being super analytical and, and learning a skill set that um, you know is is just it's it's fun to work on on this stuff every single day. But um, I I started waking up every day just and could just just couldn't stop thinking about climate change. And I remember there was this one this one moment for me. I was I was reading Uninhabitable Earth, which is just a you know a, an eye opening book. For, for sure. And I was in Southern California. I was driving down, down the one and, um, it was 2018, just after some of the bad fires there. I remember I was driving down the one and on one side of the road was, you know, uh, these beautiful flowering bushes and the ocean and, um, just this like amazing nature on one side and on the other side, just these horrible burn scars. And it was just this moment for me where I I can pinpoint exactly where I was. I was just like, I, I honestly was pretty much brought to tears. I just like couldn't take it anymore and felt, yeah, just felt like I needed to get, do something about climate change. It was just this like really visceral moment for me. Uh, so that's what kicked off my, my desire to, to really like, you know, shift all of my focus to, to climate change. And, um, you, you ask about sort of the, the power of the markets and capitalism. I think, Capitalism is like a, it's an amazing accelerant. It's an amazing incentive structure. It is great for innovation. It's super important for climate change. It is not the only thing that we need. Um, you know, we need uh, local and federal government support. We need, uh, we need socialism to take its part here as well. Um, we need, frankly, we need everything we can get to accelerate this as quickly as possible. So I think capitalism is an aspect of that for sure. It's, it's shown to be, uh, you know, obviously a, a great accelerator of innovation, but it's, it's not the only thing we need today. Did you guys consider other models for heirloom besides a for-profit company? Not that, not that you should have done otherwise. I'm just curious. That's a good question. Um, the, my first introduction to carbon removal was meeting Noah Dyke, uh, who's the executive director at uh, Carbon 180. Um, and he, you know, this was four years ago at a at an investor party. Uh, and 
the Carbon 180 is a nonprofit. Um, you know, I was this, you know, Silicon Valley dude, you know, uh, starting this uh, company, Tempo, you know, it's as technology company as you, as you can get. And most of the folks in that party were just like all preferred private company, except this one. And I, I remember like talking to Noah for like two hours, just about why aren't, why isn't the world working on what you're doing? And he actually was trying to do, you know, something around carbon removal as, as, as a startup, I think. And it realized that, Hey, before like startups can even come about, you need, you need lots of R and D dollars um, that the, the, the federal government and governments just have to put in to create this industry. So he created uh, this nonprofit um, uh, carbon 180 to be that advocate in DC to funnel um, you know, R and D dollars from the federal government to create this industry. And, and they were successful at that. Um, you know, that's, you know, that's one of the reasons we stand here. I think, you know, there is, there is an inherent power in markets, uh, that, you know, if you can take advantage of, of the self interests of individuals, of, of corporations to do both what's what, what you know what their own mission is, but also what is good for the planet. Um, I think you know the 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 way the path to a gigaton of carbon removed will be much much faster. But you know the the model we are going after using technology to um, to you know accelerate carbonation uptake rates and accelerate deployment will probably work better under a C-Corp with a massive um, financial gain later on longer term uh, than otherwise. But yeah, curious to hear Matthew's thoughts on this. I, I didn't really talk, think too much about it in the past. Yeah. I can I jump in. Yeah, yeah, of course. Well, I just want to launch off of the uh, investor thing because, and it is, maybe it's also an opportunity to explain um, a little bit about Heirloom as well. I don't remember who said it, but someone said that, like, you know, what set like Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk apart from other entrepreneurs was that they were able to solicit uh, and, and get enough capital to keep them going until they really figured out their business model. And so I'm curious, um, you know, you guys have a plan today. It's a, a really audacious plan. Can you talk a little bit about that plan? And then if you really, if I, like, if I asked you to bet on how much of 2035 heirloom will look like compared to 2021 like is it going to be 100 percent the same one percent the same uh and, and you know how much of that like investor capital plays a part in the trust to figure it out from here to 2035 yeah okay great question so <laughs> wow how do i how do i even start approaching that one um you know i think that Frankly, one of the really nice things about, about carbon removal and, and sort of specifically about heirloom is that we have a super simple goal, right? The, the thing that we want to do by 2035 is remove a billion tons of carbon dioxide from the air. That's it. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's a one sentence thing that can describe exactly what we're trying to accomplish. And, um, so that, that sort of simplicity helps a lot with, with goal setting. It helps a lot with planning. Um, I think when we talk about sort of how we get there, we have an idea, we have a pretty good idea of how we get there. We have this sort of this base in, you know, in science that shows us a path to get there. I think sort of the engineering challenges that we have ahead of us, the technical challenges that we have ahead of us, the, the technology itself will look different in 2035 than we think it will look today or than it looks today, of course. But sort of the path to get there, we think, makes, makes a lot of sense, and it's relatively simple. I think, you know, what we need to do is we need to build, and, and we think about this in sort of three phases. The first phase is we need to build our technology at its small scale, sort of a scaled-down model of our industrial plant, and we need to make sure it works. Um, that's, that's what we're trying to accomplish right now, right? We need to, we just need to show that we can remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Um, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be relying on sort of the, the pioneers of carbon dioxide removal to, to fund that carbon dioxide, got that carbon dioxide removal really early on. They're, you know, some of the largest tech businesses in the world, they're philanthropists, they're people who want to sort of go above and beyond, um, their, you know, 
go above and beyond and, and sort of spend more than they might otherwise on, on carbon removal to sort of fund these technologies early on. And then the second phase is sort of expanding beyond that to sort of, to, to, you know, to truly industrial scale, to building these things out at, at, you know, the size of a, a cement factory, not the size of a, you know, a, a small prototype in, in the Bay area. Um, and, and that's, that's sort of when it gets interesting from a climate perspective. That's when we're talking about hundreds of thousands of tons removed, a million tons removed, the sort of scale that starts to be truly impactful. And, and, and there, you know, that allows us to start helping hard to abate sectors like cement production or steel production or transportation or, or you know, air travel, the, the types of industries that are going to have trouble decarbonizing, that's when we're gonna to start to be able to sort of make a meaningful impact for them. And, you know, therefore for, for the climate generally. And then the third phase is sort of moving from there to sort of, you know, quite literally billions of tons of carbon removal um, at uh, a, a cost that anybody in the world, or at least anybody in the developed world could justify paying to remove their, their you know, their carbon dioxide and, and especially legacy emissions, the trillion tons of CO2 that are currently in the, in the atmosphere. So I think, you know, we have a very capital intensive business, it's going to be really expensive to set this up. Um, so that's where investor interest and, and, you know, early investment is important. It's not so much on pivoting or finding the exact right way to do this. It's more, we have this idea for a technology, we have the underpinnings for it. We need to start scaling it up and that's expensive. And that's, that's, that's sort of where the early investors and the early supporters really make a difference. Uh, lots to jump in there. This is a great time to explain what the technology is and you know as you're thinking about it and we're going to jump into heirloom and this business model and I have a bunch of questions on there but like from a fifth grader standpoint uh i think like the the, the first question that i have is um you know what is direct air capture and then maybe a little bit about like why you went there um in terms of and, and I, correct me if i'm wrong right but so there's like carbon removal and then from carbon removal there's nature-based solutions and then there's carbon removal technology and then within carbon removal technology is direct air capture. And so like, how did you end up here for your goal? Like you said, 2035, 1 billion gigatons or 1, 1 billion tons of CO2 removed or carbon removed. Um, I'll stop there. Yeah, great question. So I think I'll just share my journey because this is sort of the, you know, I was a fifth grader um, uh, in, when it comes to climate tech and, and carbon math. When you start thinking about how do we get to a place where we are actually reversing climate change or how do we get to a place where we are cre creating a sustainable world, um, you come across this number, um, that, which is you know, 50 billion tons of CO2 that we emit every year. Um, I don't know if you heard that. It's, it's, you know, it's, you know, Bill Gates recently talks about it in, in, in his book. Um, and you know, as a humanity, we went from you know, industrial revolution a couple hundred years ago, you know, from emitting uh, almost zero gigatons a year to 50 gigatons a, a year. So, you know, and, and you think about, wow, how do we get there? And, you know, what does that make up of? It's like, well, you, know, you can just break that up and, you know, about 10, five to 10% of that comes from cement production, about 25 to 30% of that comes from transportation, agriculture, 20% you know, um, electricity, another, you know, 20, 25%. So, you know, you can break that up. Um, and then you realize, well, you know, if I want to keep the climate warming um, to 1.5 or two degrees, which is still gonna be very, very way worse than it is today. Like we're gonna have way more once in a century floods happening, you know, every few years. Um, we are gonna have rising sea levels and, and hurricanes and, you know, he massive heat waves. Like we're still gonna have those at the 1.5 to two degrees. But the question is, you know, if you wanna keep the warming to there, what needs to happen? So, and I think that the solution, um, you know, at least a, a broad strokes of the solution, IPCC, these folks, you know, like maybe 70 different scientists came together in 2018 and wrote this report talking about, okay, how do we get from 50 to zero? And, and, and beyond to net negative, so we can actually hit these targets. And what they said was, hey, not only do we need to go from 50 to zero, actually decarbonize 
you know, um, de decarbonize transportation, decarbonize cement production. We also need to remove carbon out of the air. And not only do we need to remove carbon out of the air, we need to do gigatons of that. Well, why? Well, it's a simple math problem. Um, you know, there is a, if you want to keep the warming to 1.52 to 2 degrees, there is a limited carbon budget, right? Like a few hundred gigatons. And if you want to stay within there, it's, you have to both get your emissions down to zero per year and remove things. It's a sort of like, once you realize that you need to do both, you start thinking about, well, how do I actually remove carbon out of the air at like gigatons? You know, the simplest thing you could do is plant, go plant a tree. Right. That's the first like that's, you know, when I first heard about this, it's like, hey, why, why don't we just plant a trillion trees and, you know, realize like that was not the only person who thought about that, like a million other people already thought about that. And some people are actually pursuing that, which is great. But then you realize quickly, it's like, actually, there's problems with planting trees. Um, but when we thought about like, you know, how do we in, you know, build a solution that is, has no compromises whatsoever? Right. One of the things, at least, I, I learned about with technology is, you know, start with something, you know, in, like that has no compromises whatsoever, and, and then reduce the cost of that over time by just deploying a lot and lot of that. Um, so, you know, obviously there, there is, you know, there's a lot of ifs to that question. So, when you think about removing carbon, it's like, what is the highest quality thing that we could be doing? And, um, you know, director capture essentially, you know, brings technology and all the engineering together to make a, you know, completely no compromise solution. So, um, traditionally, how director capture, pe how people think about it is, you know, you blow a bunch of air through a fans, and then those that air that you um, blow through has a bunch of CO2 molecules and you catch those CO2 molecules uh, with really cool you know chemicals and then those chemicals after they bind them you figure out a way to unbind those chemicals from the CO2 molecules compress that CO2 molecules and then um, and then put them underground right like that's sort of the general you know high level picture of how director capture came about so for us um, you know it's it's sort of starting to rethink that, right? It's like, should we have forced airflow? Um, and I think fundamentally, the hard thing about CO2 is that um, even though there's a lot of it in the atmosphere, it's actually only one molecule out of every 2,000 molecules in the air. It's super diffuse. It's like, you have to look, even under microscope, you cannot find them. Um, so it's 0.04% it's, it's of the air. So, the you know, Trying to catch enough of those at low cost is incredibly hard. Like it's, you know, I would say it's one of the engineering challenges of the century. Um, so yeah, so that's our director capture is you you capture it today. You you can monitor exactly how much you've captured, and then um, it's it's it has uh, once you capture that you can put it underground and sequester it permanently for thousands of years. And why is permanence important? Well. You know, CO2, the life of it in the, in, in the atmosphere is, you know, is in the thousands of years, right? Like that's what creates this, these greenhouse effects because um, it just stays there. It's just this lazy molecule. So, um, and creates these uh, radiation effects. And, and that's why it needs to, if you were to capture it right out of the air, like you need to ensure that you, you find it uh, a permanent way to uh, sequester it away. So you don't uh, get, have to, you know, so you're not sort of pushing the bucket into the future, if you will. Sorry, that's a very long answer to directory capture, but. No, you're good. Uh, and uh, we're definitely gonna have really smart fifth graders li listening to this. Two quick like visualizations that I'm curious about, like one, what does a future heirloom factory compare to in a forest in terms of carbon removal? Um, like just like maybe like using example of land or like number of trees. And then also like, how do you weigh the CO2 or how do you, sorry, how do you actually um, determine how much CO2 you capture? Like I can go on a scale and recognize that like I've captured three bagels and cream cheese and like now I weigh more, right? But like, is that like, how do you guys do it for like knowing exactly how much carbon you're taking out of the air? Sure. Um, so, yeah, I think a very a, a, a clear mental picture, at least our, with our technology. So our technology, what, what, you know, we don't blow air uh, through fans. Uh, we uh, we have something called passive contactor. Uh, so I'll you know simplify this a little bit. So a passive contactor is is you know think of a a shelf rack uh, with a bunch of. Uh, trays in them, and um, each tray has a uh, as a media, a, a chemical 
that is naturally able to uptake carbon out of the air um, uh, just by wind uh, replenishing the CO2. Um, and so, you know, think of a rack and, or, or a tower, and maybe this is uh, a, a couple, three foot by three feet um, in, in length and width. Uh, so, you know, meter by meter, uh, and then maybe, uh, you know, 20 to 30 feet tall. So in each one of these towers uh, should be able to capture a ton of CO2 uh, every two weeks, um, you know, if you're actually successful with this. Um, so compare that to trees. So trees uh, take about, about um, 50 trees, about 48 or something like that, uh, average size trees uh, sequester about one ton of CO2 per year. Um, so, I don't know exactly how many acres uh, that is. It's some, some, some fraction of an acre. Um, I think it's between a tenth of an acre up to uh, a few tenths of an acre uh, to, to capture one ton of CO2 for, for biomass. So, you know, in general, you know, ton by ton, like uh, we use one one thousandth of the land about, um, you know, so it's, it's, it's incredibly efficient land use wise. Um, so if you want to, you know, limit land use even more, we, we just increase the, the, the height of these towers. Uh, instead of 20 feet, maybe we got to 30 or 40 feet, et cetera. Um, you know, it becomes more and more of an engineering challenge, but, you know, land is actually, I'm glad you brought it up. It's, you know, um, land use is important um, dimension to figuring out like how you capture carbon is, uh, it's because, um, you know, there's there's lots of competition for land, especially as you're trying to feed 11 billion, 11 billion people uh, over the next century. Um, and we've already converted a lot of, um, you know, forests in, in, into, you know, uh, cattle and, um, you know, food production. So, and, you know, that's, that's increasingly going to be a problem to ensure that, you know, especially solutions like carbon removal that like have to be such, so gigantic. Uh, in how they are deployed. So ensuring that we use as little land as possible is important. And what about capturing? Like, how do you measure how much cap carbon you captured? It's super simple. It's the nice thing about uh, uh, this process is, you know, there's this, there's this media that captures the CO2 molecules, and then we have something called a calcination process. Um, what that does, it's, it's basically a, a massive oven an oven that goes up to super, super hot temperatures, like 800 degrees to, to 900 degrees Celsius. Um, and then what that does, it, it, it liberates the CO2 molecule. It thermally decomposes the CO2 molecule that this mineral went and uh, 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 reacted with in the air. Um, and then once you liberate that CO2 molecule, like you're able to literally weigh it, right? Like you're able to, it's just pure stream CO2. So, you know, it's, there, there's really no questions about uh, how much CO2 you capture. It's like point, you know, plus or minus 0.1%, uh, which is actually hard on the biomass. You know, it's like, uh, I think, you know, trees have done this incredible job of, of you know, sequestering lots and lots of carbon and maintaining the carbon balance of the atmosphere. Um, so, you know, measuring carbon is, is, is a bit more challenging with a biomass approach. Yeah. The, uh, w one thing to add there though. So, so there's a, there's a difference between how much CO2 we, we capture and our actual net negativity, right? So we have to both weigh that CO2, but also consider, uh, you know, what is called a life cycle analysis. We have to do a full life cycle analysis of our entire plant. So there are embodied emissions in the steel we use in, uh, in that oven that Shashank was just talking about, um, in, you know, the solar panels that power it. So we have to consider, you know, how much, how much, uh, carbon dioxide did we emit to actually build the, you know, this plant that sucks CO2 out of the air and, and factor that in as well. So there's, you know, there's a small discount associated with that, um, that, that we also have to take into account. Shashank, you mentioned, you know, trying to convince 600 million farmers to change their ways. And as I've been, you know, reading, I've been thinking about 
does heirloom success basically give humanity a license to not change their ways, right? Because like we need farmers to change their ways. We need green steel. We need green cement. We need clean airplanes, right? Like you're kind of proposing like a secret diet pill, which is like going back to my bagel example, right? That like I can just continue to eat bagels as much as I want. And I love bagels. Um, but then I can take your diet pill. I can take heirloom technology, uh, like your carbon removal technology, and then I don't have to worry about it, right? Um, like, do, like what are your thoughts? Um, it, I mean, does your success mean that humanity kind of just remains in stasis no i it's actually the opposite i think um it's an interesting thing it's like the, you know they call this the moral hazard problem which which is very real right like i think philosophically this is something that we need to worry about um you know i, I don't think this is something that you can just easily discount whether this creates that behavior um you know i think it's at the early stages of carbon removal and people have been talking about needing carbon removal as a part of the portfolio um you know, to, to reverse climate change and to get to net zero for a long time. And in the first few years, um, you know, thinking back, back a decade now, um, folks like Noah Dyke at Carbon 180, they've had to answer this exact question of moral hazard. Um, and I think at this point, the science is pretty clear at the end of the day, right? Like if this, we, we need both. It's not a nice to have, to have carbon removal. It is absolutely both and absolutely both of all, a, a lot of both. We absolutely need to convince farmers to re, you know, remove carbon. We absolutely need to decarbonize cement. We absolutely need to you know, decarbonize transportation and aviation, electrify air, airplanes. And you know, we need to you know, uh, move from um, a, a, an agriculture industry that is you know, so hell-bent on fertilizer and, and pesticides um, and also create lots of carbon emissions and methane emissions. You know, there's 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 a billion cows that burp out methane that um, that you know, we need to figure out how to go to you know uh, less less carbon intensive meat um, and you know maybe culture meat or plant based meat. Um, we need to do all of that. Like, and it's just a massive, massive way. It's just like you know when you talk about gigatons and like people, it's very hard to wrap your mind around gigatons. It's like um, just for context, you know, oil industry extracts about 4 billion tons of oil uh, every year. And this is an industry that took 150 years to extract. And then like partly the industrial revolution, information revolution, all of the, you know, improvement and human quality of living came out because of this, because of this exact oil revolution of being able to extract that much amount of fossil fuel uh, out. And, and, that's 4 billion tons of, of fluid every year. And like, we need to be removing 10 billion tons of CO2 out of the air, right? And in, in, in a fraction of that time, in 20 or 30 years. So, you know, it's like, I think first off, like I, you know, I hope humanity solves this problem. So that's why we need soil carbon, we need trees, we need, you know, every single method and we need technologies like heirloom. So, you know, I think if you want to, you know, to have a, have a, you know, a planet that we are that we enjoy and that the, the biodiversity that we enjoy um we need all of these things to happen so it's you know the the whether this gives license to pollute i think unfortunately like i think that is sort of a zero-sum type of um thinking and, and i hope that you know not that you were thinking this at all like i mean this is a very common uh, challenge that people think about. And I think it, it comes down to designing policies and designing targets for carbon uh, removal and uh, designing targets for decarbonization that, so that all of this can work in cohesion and uh, in together in a unified way to, to get us to these carbon targets. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. I think there's also, you know, there's a, there's a world when we look decades into the future where um, where we have figured out how to actually decarbonize all of these different industries. And, um, you know, it's up to the United States to to remove the, you know, tens of, of gigatons of, of CO2 that we've pumped into the air over the last hundred years. And it's up to Europe to do that as well. And, um, you know, it's, it, that remains to be seen, whether we have the political will to do that or the, the geopolitical will maybe. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's it's a technology that could be used for legacy emissions as well. But again, it's just not, you know, it's not this thing that we can just rely on to to solve climate change. Um, you know, we need to do so much more than that over the next five years and ten years and twenty years. It's just it's just a bigger problem than that. 
Yeah. And, 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 you know, there's also like this idea of like a carbon budget. Um, I, I believe it's like Rose Mutiso. I probably messed up her name. Um, I apologize in advance. But she talked about how like countries in Africa are having trouble getting natural gas plants or, or funding for natural gas plants because everyone's like, it has to be clean. And it's like, well, like you guys used like you being like the developed countries used all of your timber, all your natural gas, all of your oil. Right. And so I, I think kind of like to just jump off of what you're saying this they're two in partnership like we continue to use and help develop countries develop in a way that's maybe less clean but at the same time like the developed countries are, are possibly the ones who are responsible to figure out the carbon removal piece of the puzzle yeah like it's interesting um you know at what point you know countries like india right like they're they're you know installing new power plants fossil fuel power plants today uh and that could literally lift people out of poverty and and have a better quality of living. Have, you know, lights at 6 p.m. so you can your kids can do your homework instead of you know um, it's something that we just take for granted. Um, so do you look at those communities that are trying to put up these plants and be like, hey, like you can't do that, um, right? It's it's incredibly tough moral and an ethical problem like that's you know that's where you know climate and, and equity really sort of disentangles a little bit and and in those scenarios it's like you know i think carbon removal can really come to can, can come handy right like it's something that we could do um in concert with every other decarbonization strategy um you know the so it's just not a choice anymore to um, you know, whether you have carbon removal or not, or whether you know, it just has to work in, in concert with everything else. And I don't know if Microsoft is one of your partners or future partners, but they just announced like that recently that like they are going, they feel responsible for all of their previous emissions. I'm seeing like a huge smile on Shashank. So I don't know if like there's uh, there's information that can be shared, but like the, you know, the, philo- the philosophy is totally there. Um Maybe Max, this is probably, maybe this is for the commercial commercialization standpoint, but like, what's the longest pull in the tent for bringing your technology to the, to reaching the one gigaton goal, the one billion tons removed goal? And then like, are you solving every single piece of it or is there anyone else or do you need other parts solved by government companies, whomever? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I think you know, when we think about the challenges ahead of us, the sort of the immediate priority of our of our company is to sort of just you know get a plant up and running and and prove that our technology works. But the long pole is going to be on on developing a marketplace for carbon dioxide removal and um, and putting sort of legal and financial frameworks around the the way that governments or organizations or companies. Um, by carbon dioxide removal. I think it's a, it's an incredibly challenging problem and, and one that we need, you know, we need the frameworks that have helped uh, solar and wind scale to the, you know, they're still a tiny percentage of, of energy production, but they're, they're clearly taking off now, right? They have gotten, we have gotten solar and wind to the point where it is the cheapest source of electricity. And we need this types of structures that were in place, um, you know, midway through their developments to come into place for, for carbon dioxide removal as well. You know, we, um, that, that's a, that's a hugely important thing for us because when we, when we think about our, our prices or our, or our cost, really, we need it to come down to that $50 level for it to make a, for it to make just a, a you know, a huge climate impact a bit to, for it to make that gigaton impact. And in order for that to happen, we need hundreds of millions billions of dollars put put towards carbon dioxide removal and you know that means you need pension funds and you need federal procurement and you need the types of you know sort of the types of funds that are that have you know have enormous capital to spend on this to be comfortable buying it and um, that requires regulatory frameworks and, and it requires sort of all the things that um you know, that, that go along with that. So I think that's, that's the long pole. That's, that's sort of the thing that we still need to solve. Um, it's, it's a huge, it's a huge driver of our success for sure. And something that, um, something we're thinking about a lot, it's a, you know, it's not something we'll solve this year by any means. It's not something we'll solve next year. There's going to be a bunch of different experiments into what, 
um, you know, what carbon dioxide removal purchases look like. And we need to start experimenting with those immediately because they're disparate groups. They're all around the world there. It's going to require so many different types of people to, to get together and make this happen. So, I mean, on the marketplace side, that's to me is, is the clear long pole. We just, we need to solve that one and we need to get on that pretty quickly. And you mentioned you came have a little bit of the crypto background. So I'm curious, kind of like, is there any parallel there? And and who's working on kind of the like the coin base of carbon offsets? <laughs> oh man. Okay. <laughs> Here we go. Crypto background. Um, you know, Shashank mentioned Ministry for the Future earlier. There's a uh, there's this uh, this idea that the the UN implements with the world's largest central banks, where they issue issue carbon coins for for you know, one carbon coin for a ton sequestered, and anyone in the world, no matter how they're sequestering carbon, whether it's a you know a smallholder farm in Costa Rica implements new soil carbon practices, uh, they get a carbon coin that they can uh, you, they can redeem with any of the world's large central banks. There's there's you know I don't know that's. <laughs> that's sort of a pipe dream, of course, and and who knows if if crypto actually uh, has a has a part to play there. But potentially, I think you know, finance is is digitizing, obviously. Um, so it's possible that that in the background that will be run on crypto. But I don't think that's really the that's not really the foundation for it. It's really more about it's more about political will. The implementation is sort of a detail. Um, I think. Um, what was your second question? I'm just like curious who's building the Coinbase, like the not even even like de- not crypto related, but oh. who's building the like marketplace for trading um, carbon sure. offsets or carbon removal, whatever you want to call it. There's a bunch of marketplaces for carbon removal popping up. Um, you know, they're generally relatively small. Um, they're they're startups. They're uh, all around the world. There's some popping up in Europe, some in some in the UK, some in, in San Francisco. Um, I, uh, I think the big, you know, the big one that, that comes to mind is Stripe, frankly, Stripe is, you know, has connected most of the world's, uh, software businesses. Uh, they sort of, what's their, what's their mission to increase the GDP of the internet, something like that. Um, and frankly, they, they are doing that, you know, they have billions of tons of, or, sorry, billions of dollars of GMV moving through their system every single day. Um, I, I think, that's a that's an obvious marketplace for carbon dioxide removal that, that's growing and will continue to grow, um, and and there will be sort of specialty ones as well. I'm sure there will be you know some that pop up that are that specialize in, in connecting um, you know high emitting industry with uh, with technology solutions. There will some that will be specifically focused on soil carbon. There will be some that specifically focused on uh, reforestation and afforestation, but. Um, you know, there. I, I wouldn't say there's any one clear winner yet, like like a Coinbase out there. But um, you know, there's a bunch popping up, so we'll see. We'll see what happens. I think. Um, I think Stripe's the clear clear leader at this point. Here are a few stats about Heirloom before we continue on. They are a San Francisco-based company funded by some of the biggest names in venture capital, including Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is Bill Gates' company, Lower Carbon Capital, Prelude Ventures. In just a few months since founding, Heirloom is already working with some of the biggest names in tech, including selling carbon removal credits to Stripe for over $2,000 a ton. The goal being that starting at 2000, prove the technology, and as they scale up, they can bring it back down to their stated $50 a ton goal. The Heirloom team acknowledges that it's going to take 10 years to bring their technology to scale. It's much easier to start a podcast, but they know that. They're committed to it, and it's exciting. So I, I have two engineering degrees, so I hope I'm doing this math right. Um, although like, I definitely was not the best at differential equations. But you're planning to remove a billion tons a year, and you're pricing it at $50 a ton. So $50 billion a ton industry. What other industries, uh, that $50, $50 billion a year, just, just, just an heirloom itself, right? Um, like what other industries are doing kind of that, um, that level of, of just amount of, of moving money? And then like, is that what motivates you for do this? Is that how you picked your $1 billion, your, your one, um, your one gigaton goal? The one gigaton goal is purely off of the 
the 10 billion tons of CO2 that needs to be removed per year. You know, if you can play a tenth of the, if you can play a role that solves tenth of that problem, um, you know, I think I think we've we've made a made good progress. And obviously, we, you know, our goal is not to to stop at a billion. You know, like that's sort of the goal at 2015, and hopefully after that we we started not 2035, um, and hopefully after that we we continue to remove more and more. Um, you know, I think. At scale, we want to get to, you know, 21, $20, 21 dollars of $50, you know, with inflation, maybe that will change over time. But um, the, you know, I think at the beginning, it's going to be a lot more expensive, right? Um, just like solar, uh, literally only 20 years ago was 20 times as more expensive as it is today per kilowatt hour. It's just insane. Um, I think that's very similar to what's going to happen in carbon removal. Um, you know, as, as folks will see in a couple of weeks when we, you know, when, when we launch uh, with, with uh, our, our first customers, you'll see the print up price per ton that we offer there. It's just, you know, we're, we're selling, uh, you know, tonnage from our, you know, pre-pilot engineering run. And that's going to be very expensive. And actually, you know, it just so happens our costs are way higher than what we even charge for that customer because, you know, like these are prototypes. And so, you know, we asked the first question, like, well, how many, there's actually many industries that move tens of billions of dollars of products, right? Like automotive and oil industry and food. And um, so I think, you know, at, at scale, carbon removal as if in an industry will be probably as big or larger than the oil industry is today, uh, just in about 25, 30 years. Um, and, you know, look at what happened with internet, like you know, 25 years ago, there isn't much internet going around. Now, you know, the top, five to 10 uh, companies by market cap are, are internet. And I think that's gonna similarly happen with climate tech in general, um, not just I think carbon removal, climate tech will, will, will be right there in about 15, 20 years. One of my favorite infographics is, a, um, is the S&P 500, or, or maybe it's just like top companies by market cap and it moves. It starts in 1990 and it moves until today and you're seeing like, you know, Coca-Cola and it's like at the top, right? And it's like dropping down and you're seeing what, and like Apple kind of fall off the cliff and now come back to the top. I think that's super cool. How much of what you guys do is motivated? Uh, we kind of talked about a little bit, but like, you know, profits, why, why start a climate tech company? Is it because like you believe that you have an opportunity to be number one? at least from a market cap perspective? Um, God, no. I mean, if, I think if you want to be a, if you want to build the sort of the surest bet to a number one market cap company today, it's still software for sure. The margins are huge that you can build them quickly. Like, you know, TikTok is whatever, four years old, and it's already a you know, multi-hundred billion dollar company. Um, this is an incredibly challenging problem. It's incredibly, you know, technically complex and risky. And, um, it, it's just, you know, it, it's, it, this is not the good thing to go do. If you're just trying to make a bunch of money, it's fundamentally about climate change, right? Like we have this thing in front of us and this happens to be one of the best ways that we can apply our skills to the, to the, to this challenge. And it's a, it's a technology and a, and a, you know, science that feels like it's a good approach to take. It's a, it's a reasonable bet within climate tech. Um, we think it's a very good bet within climate tech, but it's not, this is not something that's going to happen overnight. This is, you know, when we're talking about these goals, these are 15 years from now, they're not, they're not tomorrow. And it's going to be arduous and long and hard. And, um, it's, it's very much motivated by, by helping, helping to make a dent in climate change. And if, if it's not motivated by that, it, people are going to quit um, because it's going to be hard. It's going gonna, it's gonna to suck at times for sure. Yeah, this is definitely not the place to be if you want to make a bunch, like a ton of money fast. Like, um, you know, I think when we hire folks, it's like, actually, you know, even people that come into the pipeline, you know, people don't even talk to us if, if, if the number one thing is not our mission, like it's mission alignment all the way, right? Like, you know, at some point, you know, it's, it's like if you, if, you, if you graph out, you know, happiness uh, as a function of money, it's like it levels up pretty quickly. And unfortunately, in developed countries like the U.S., um, you know, most folks, you know, have, have an opportunity to get to um, or at least, you know, 
um, opportunities to get to uh, a certain level of income. And, you know, unfortunately, you know, uh, Max, I, and many, many of the folks in the Bay Area have, have, have fortunate to have this type of happiness where like after that, like after a certain amount of money, it just it doesn't increase it that much. So it's like, um, you know, crypto is actually a great place to make a bunch of money fast. Um, and I often think about this framework of, you know, average intention of, 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 of people in a given industry. Um, and, and I think, you know, if you walk into a crypto conference, right, I think there's a bunch of people who, you know, who are all about sort of financial freedom and, and the things that crypto does to, to society in the future. And, and I think that's awesome. Um, and I share some of those ideals, but I think a bunch of people and a lot more people um, just are in it to make the money, right? So, and I think, you know, that type of industry doesn't attract me so much or, you know, the people that we usually hire because um, the average intention is just like to make money. Um, and, and I think if you look into climate, um, I think the spectrum of sort of altruistic versus kind of mercenary um, I think the average intention is way more towards altruistic. And I, it doesn't mean that like you shouldn't have completely, uh, you know, self-interest around, you know, maximizing your own financial gain. Um, I think a little bit of that is, is fine. Um, you know, but the, the, you know, what, what makes me so fulfilled about this industry is like working with people who are so far in the altruistic lens um, and, and using their talents to actually create companies with, 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 with vast, vast amounts of long-term financial gains for people who are in there at, at, the, at, the, at the early onset. And, and, and it, yeah, and the pure motivation is to help climate. One of the amazing things about carbon removal is, um, you know, the, the alignment between financial gain and climate benefit is perfect, right? The thing that we sell is a carbon credit, a, a ton of carbon dioxide removed from the atmosphere. And so, there's no, yeah, there's just no complication there. Um, it's, it's really, it's a really nice alignment. And I think it's something that, you know, you just, you don't get in a lot of industries or any industry, maybe it's, it's really, it's quite unique. And, and, um, you know, again, financial gains, not a, not a bad thing. We're obviously building a, a we're building a business and we have venture investors and, and we are, you know, there, they expect, uh, they expect capital returns. And so we will, we will do that. And that's, um, that's part of this, that's part of this goal. It's part of what accelerates our, our learning and our deployment. And, and those are important things, of course, but, um, it's just, uh, yeah, it's a really nice, nice way to align that financial gain with climate benefit. I'm so inspired. I, I really, I started this journey, this, uh, the, although, you know, I know that term is used in other podcasts. Um, I started like this, <laughs> you know, the climate consciousness, you could say, uh, as a super optimist. And like, when I read, I get more and more pessimistic every day, but I, I'm, I'm really inspired now. I, I guess I'm insinuating or assuming that your investors are ready to stay on for 15 years. I mean, it, it just is an interesting, um, opportunity cost of capital, but you know, like you said, like there are possibly large returns. I also want to respect your time. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about heirloom, you guys, you guys specifically, um, direct air capture. I have a few more quick questions. Since founding a climate tech company, are you more self-conscious of climate change faux pas, like flying or meat eating? And are there any changes that you've made in your life personally, because either because it was more morally aligned with your values or because like you're, you know, at the forefront of a climate tech company and you feel responsible to take actions on the personal side as well? Yeah, um, it's a good question. I, you know, I, I actually think about this uh, a lot. Um, on the flying side, it's uh, it's one of the most impactful climate things you can do, uh, right? Is is just stop flying. Um, we've been forced to stop flying by COVID, or many of us have. So um, that's it's been sort of not a personal choice. I think I am, am cognizant of it. I think that you know, meat eating as well. One of the things I've been trying to do is stop eating meat that I don't. You know, if I don't know where that meat comes from, I I am not eating it. Um, you know, we, we, I, my partner and I buy, <laughs> buy our, all of our meat from a sustainable farm in, in Marin, which is like such a, such a San Francisco thing to do. But, um, you know, we know that they use managed, gra managed grazing practices. We know that they're sequestering carbon in their soil. Um, it's, 
it's significantly more expensive, but it means we eat a lot less of it. Um, it's not a, you know, it's not a main thing we have at dinner every night. It's, it's a, it's a small piece of our dinner instead. And, and often we just eat veg. Um, but you know, I, I think that was something that predated, uh, working at heirloom. It was something that I was thinking about before is just like the, you know, what are the types of things you can do to, to be more climate conscious? It's, it's those two things are, are really two of the most important things you can do. I think I, you know, I read somewhere, interestingly, one of the, one of the best ways to be more in tune with your climate impact is to plant a garden, um, which I think is really interesting to understand how the earth produces, to understand how you have to give back to the earth in order to get more from it, um, that it's a, it's a give and take. It's not just extractive. Um, you know, there, there are little things that you can do to sort of just help your understanding at least, but yeah, I mean, listen, we, we all like participate in the global economy and we have, we need to have things to survive and, um, you know, sort of doing our best to, <laughs> to sort of find ways to at, you know, at scale, reduce carbon, you know, the carbon intensity of our, of our lives. That's, that's the kind of thing I'm, I'm trying to focus on is just little things of course, but you know, we're trying to move, remove a billion tons of carbon dioxide too, which is, is kind of, you know, that's better than, than dropping a steak, but, but I'm trying to do both for sure. Yeah. Like it's interesting to, to think about individual carbon footprints. Um, and I think if we, if we succeed, you know, one, one metric I used to think about when I first got into carbon removal was if we were to make this so cheap um, to, you know, completely offset your emissions, like first, again, like everyone needs to be decarbonized, like their, their personal choices, the industries need to decarbonize, et cetera. And there's going to be still leftover emissions and, and, and also uh, legacy emissions. Um, so as an individual, like how, how do you offset that in, in, in a high quality way? Well, can DAC, Director Capture, help with that? So, you know, an a, a average US citizen makes about, what is it, per capita, $60,000, $65,000 a year. And, and, you know, an average US citizen emits about 16 tons of CO2 per year. And if you... At, at $50 per ton, that's about $800 a year. So $800 for a person, an average person making 65,000 a year, it's, it's about you know, one to 1.25% of their annual income. And you know, obviously most of those emissions, uh, those 60 tons, we need to decarbonize. But you know, for someone today to completely offset that, um, if, if something was available at $50 per ton, that'd be, you know, a one to 2% tax, right? Is that, is that a fair thing to do, right? It's ethical, not that we should. It's like, it's, is that, you know, I think that that's what um, DAC could, could provide, um, you know, in addition to decarbonizing. So um, anyway, I, I think as a as sort of a personal choice, like, you know, I've, I think, I think in 2017, about four years ago, I reduced meat like, you know, 95, 98%. I think slowly, you know, it was like, you know, eating, I used to eat chicken every day almost. Uh, I just really liked, uh, liked it. Um, you know, I think it reduced it to once a week. And then now it's like every three months, you know, it's like, I, I love chicken biryani. Like I grew up eating this awesome, you know, uh, Indian dish my mom made. And it's like, I'm not gonna, you know, <laughs> So, you know, like I, I really don't like, I really want to eat it, you know? So like, that doesn't mean that I have to turn into a pure vegan or pure vegetarian. And I think actually, I hope that, you know, these labels of vegetarian and vegan sort of kind of, um, you know, they, they, they might be doing more bad than good um, because like maybe it's, I think there is, it's, it's not a binary thing, right? Let's say you can reduce by 95, 98% and still do 95, 98% better, uh, more good than otherwise. Um, so I hope society sort of accepts the, the new term, the flexitarians, I think is what they right, uh, call it. So I'm, I'm a flexitarian when it comes to that. Um, so, yeah. And then, you know, I, I drive like, you know, my, my sister drives this now, but a Honda Civic that my parents uh, gifted me after high school. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a gasoline car. And now when I drive it, I, I sometimes like, man, like, you know, it's like, oh, I really, it's like, man, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm in a position where I can afford an electric car and I should be. Um, 
And, but like, I have the sentimental value for this car. So like, I want to, you know, keep driving it. So it's, you know, I am still sort of in that journey of slowly, you know, uh, moving my choice to more and more carbon free. Um, but uh, yeah, it's, it, it, that some of the, some of those things take time, but you know. I will say in my notes, um, I, I, I asked this question, but like on, on the side, I want to add that like you guys are putting your blood, sweat, tears, and time and money into removing carbon from the air. So it's not like the, as you said, like it's not, it's a flexitarian approach. Last few questions, I promise. Um, and maybe we'll try and keep this one brief, but it's up to you guys because you're the ones who are answering. What does heirloom success mean for the world, but, but really you guys personally? I think if, I think if heirloom is successful, it gives the world sort of a, you know, either a few extra years to, to decarbonize and, a, and a just a little bit better chance to hit our one and a half and two degree targets. And, and, you know, any, <laughs> any one or two or 5% better chance we have to do that is, is really fantastic. And I think if we can get that in the high single digits uh, in the double digits, that's awesome. Um, that's, that's really what success means. And I think, you know, the, sort of the personal gratification from that would be amazing. It would be so cool to be able to just have an impact on, on climate change and to help, you know, help uh, the world's ecosystems and biodiversity and, and the, the, you know, the people that are, that can't really do anything about climate change that need to just, to just focus on living. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that's really where, what it's all about. It's all about just figuring out a way to, to make that work. Got to solve climate change, man. <laughs> yeah. I think, you know, as, as if, if heirloom is successful, I think in, in the interesting thing about carbon removal is that we, we not only have a chance to accelerate decarbonization, but also reverse it, right? Like going to zero and, and going negative and, and actually reverse it back to 280 PPM where we were, um, you know, not that long ago in the, in the cosmic scale. So I think, you know, all the coral that is dying today, all the, you know, pollution that um, will, will continue to be around the heat waves in India and, 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 and other tropical areas. Like, if you actually reverse it, we will be able to swim with coral again, right? Like, we will be able to, you know, restore ecosystems and biodiversity that, that were around that maybe our children won't be able to experience. But you know, heirloom can actually help bring, bring that about, um, bring, bring the, the nature of the past that we love and cherish. Um, where, you know, the summertime heat in India, you know, just doesn't sort of plateau, but actually comes back and is actually celebrated. Um, and, and, you know, we cherish, we, we, we cherish our fresh air in, in, in California, you know, every, every season, every September or October, when usually it's fire season now. So it's, um, you know, I think the goal is not just to plateau and, and sort of keep the climate impacts, um, you know, from, st from stopping to worsen, but rather actually get back to where we are. Um, and we can only do that when we remove um, all the legacy emissions as well. Um, so I think that's the promise of Erlo. And I, for me, like I, for, 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 for the team, um, you know, if we can just sort of stay in the background and just sort of help build this machine, like that, that would be awesome. Right. Like, you know, I think we, we can, this is going to take an entire village, not just our team, um, people who will buy, you know, tonnage at high dollars per ton at the beginning, you know, thanks to Stripe and Shopify, Microsoft, all these folks and many other folks that we will need, um, uh, to join our journey that will fund these initial expensive plans uh while we bring them bring down the cost curve so i mean it's it's all of these folks at the beginning uh, will be pioneering this so it's like you know we, we're you know we're, we were only small parts of this i think we just need a lot more people to join join as our join our mission really quick favorite climate journalist or news source god i'm gonna shout out carbon plan here which is not a news source but it's a research research uh organization and they uh, specifically focus on carbon dioxide removal and are just doing absolutely amazing work. Sort of all the things I, I love, uh, number one, of course, carbon dioxide removal, but number two, just the most amazing data visualizations I have ever seen. It's really, really <laughs> exceptional. So um, yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's some of the best climate related reporting I've, I've seen. 
I guess I'll, I'll shout a shout out to that, the novel we just talked about earlier. I think every person, every policymaker, every climate advocate, every just general citizen should read uh, 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 Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, just does an incredibly good job of intersecting politics and technology and society culture. Uh, and, and just create, wrote this beautiful novel about how the future can be. Um, and both from sort of provoking, you know, what sort of very visually what the future could look like with really bad climate change, but also how we could get around it and, and create a, uh, a much better uh, future than, than, than he paints at the beginning, so. Thank you both. I had a great time. I'm super inspired. Uh, how should people get in touch? couple ways uh, on Twitter we're trying to be more more active um, so at heirloom carbon um, we're also uh, you can email us at, at hello at heirloomcarbon.com um, and if you want to send me a personal email I'm, I'm shashank at heirloomcarbon.com and, and and similarly for max um, max at heirloomcarbon.com so yeah we'd love to hear from folks uh, climate climate advocates um, and uh, Max, do you have anything to add there? About? Yeah, I mean, best way to get in contact with us is, is uh, you can also sign up for our, for our newsletter at heirloomcarbon.com, uh, follow us on LinkedIn, you can see our, our jobs page on our website or, or on a bunch of different places, Climate Base, uh, AngelList, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Thanks again to Shashank and Max for joining us on today's show. You can find them on LinkedIn, Heirloom Carbon on Twitter, or reach out directly through email at hello at heirloomcarbon.com. After my interview with Max and Shashank, I'm left wondering, how is the world going to look different in 10 years? They're envisioning a future that doesn't exist today. I'm thinking about what my next podcast episode is going to be next week, and they're thinking 10 years down the road, who's going to be in the S&P 500 because they're removing carbon from the atmosphere. It's exciting to think about. Will the carbon removal industry be as big as the oil exploration industry is today? I hope so. I'd love to hear what you thought about the episode. You can join the conversation about net zero living on my weekly Clubhouse office hours by following at the net zero life on Clubhouse, Twitter, Instagram, all that good stuff. I'm also on LinkedIn. You can email me at Nathan at the net zero life.com. This episode was produced by Tawny Levitt, original music composed by Climb On. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you hear, please, please, please leave a review. It helps us out tremendously. Until next week, I'm Nathan Svee, and this is The Net Zero Life.